you, um, you, you don't have to be married long to know that part of what it means to be in a marriage is that inevitably there's going to be conflict. And it's not just marriage. It's all relationships have various degrees of conflict. Uh, it's grad Sunday, and I was thinking about when I walked into my dorm room and met for the first time my college roommate. I had no idea who he was, and so I walked in, and I met him, and he was from Oregon, and I was from Washington, and I was like, ugh, strike one. And uh, then we got to know each other, and he became a, a good friend of mine until one day, one day, uh, I woke up. And I had bought a couch from Goodwill with my own money. It's my couch. And then I woke up and I saw him sitting on my couch that I spent $20 on. And he was clipping his toenails on it. (laughs) He had defiled it. And at that moment, before that, our relationship was just smooth and wonderful. But it was at that moment that conflict entered our story. And we had a, as 18-year-old boys do, we had a heart-to-heart. And ever since then, that relationship had an increasing level of conflict. I call it toenail gate, all right? Circa 2002. Well, this spring, we've been going through a book of the Bible in the Old Testament that's a poem all about love. It's called the Song of Songs. And up until this point, from the first four chapters in this book, it's all care bears and love. It is Eden. It's just completely idealistic. And there is no kind of even hint at conflict or tension until we arrive in chapter five. And then everything gets real. And I don't know about you, but I just love how real the Bible is. Because we left off last last, uh, week in chapter 4, and it's the honeymoon suite. And now we're not in the honeymoon suite. So marriage doesn't start when you get married in the honeymoon suite. Marriage really starts the next day. When you go to the airport and your wife forgets her passport. That's right when marriage starts. Or marriage starts when you arrive at the airport and they weigh your wife's bag, and it's 10 pounds over, and then she suggests that you take things out of your bag (laughs) so that she could put it in yours. That's when marriage begins. Or marriage starts, these are all hypothetical, obviously. (laughs) Marriage starts when you walk through security, and your wife's bag gets held up for like 15 or 20 minutes. You're already late because you've learned the valuable lesson that what takes you 10 minutes to get ready in the morning takes your wife five hours. And so you're already late and you're going through security and her bag gets, you know, dinged because she's decided that she needs 15 pounds of sunscreen and you're going to like Montana in December. And then you get on the airplane and you realize that it's only a two hour flight, but she has to get up five times and crawl over you as her purse falls all over you, right? I mean, that's when marriage begins. That's marriage. And that's the sort of scene that we find ourselves in this part of Song of Songs for the first time. The idealism wears off, and now we have a sort of Edenic marriage 
lived out east of Eden. So this is the big idea. It should be on the screen behind me. This kind of summarizes as best I can this section of Song of Songs, which is love is inconvenient, which makes it all the more precious. So if you will turn with me to Song of Songs, chapter 5, we'll start in verse 2 and go into a few verses into chapter 6. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. From, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garden, my, sorry, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand on the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open my, uh, open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed when my soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than other beloveds? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than other, another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as ravens. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are like lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, uh, decked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather the lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So go back to up to verse 2. Verse 2 starts in a sort of dream-like sequence, right? We read, I, I slept, but my heart was awake. And, and some wonder, because there's two ways you can interpret this, some wonder, you know, is, is this just a dream? Because it's got a surreal nature to it. And so maybe she's just dreaming, or maybe she was dreaming, but then she woke up. Really, in one sense, it doesn't matter. What, what matters is actually one interpretive thing that we must take into consideration. That this is poetry, and in, and because it's poetry, we, we can't take this as like a strict kind of plot narrative with kind of a chronological order to everything. This is poetry, and so it's surreal, and it's meant to be surreal. Um, I, I don't know about your dreams, but my dreams are abrupt and weird, okay? Just so d- don't get all Freudian, but the other night I was having this dream, and I showed up to church, and I forgot that it was my 
turned to preach, and I walked up, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I have no idea what I'm going to preach, and I was like freaking out, and then I walked into this door, and all of a sudden, I saw a man sitting there, and he said, sit down, and I was like, okay, so I sat down, and evidently, I learned that I was applying to work at the CIA, so then I knocked that interview out of the park, and uh, then I left, and I walked through another door, and all of a sudden, it was I was sitting on my high school basketball team's bench, and I was waiting for my coach to call me in the game, right? Like, I have no idea what that means, and you might be thinking, I should have, we should have gotten a psyche valve on this guy before we hired him as a senior pastor. But like, I can't be alone in this. Like our, our dreams are weird. They're surreal. They're abrupt. They move from scene to scene. And, and really what's most important isn't the, what does this all mean? Or is this literally true in, in, in a historic sense? The important thing is the mood, the feelings, the emotion of it all. That's what matters most. And so she's either asleep or she just has woken up and she hears something. And it's kind of quiet at the beginning. And then it gets louder and louder. And then she realizes that it's a knock. Her husband is knocking at the door. And he begins to sort of sweet talk her, doesn't he? Look look at verse 2. He has all these pet names. He's wooing her. He's like, my love, my sister, my dove, my perfect one. He's basically saying, hey, babe. Right? And it's sweet, but you can just see the scene, right? Wives, you know exactly what's happening here. He's knocking. He's sweet-talking her. You know exactly what he wants. And if you don't know, just keep reading. It becomes clear to us all. The imagery is pretty clear that this is nighttime. He got home later than he thought. He got held up at the office, as it were. He's, he's wet because the, you know, the, the Uber ride dropped him off far away. And so the spring rain has just kind of soaked him. And he's wondering, ah, uh, is it too late to have a rendezvous with my wife? That's what he wants. He, he, he wants her. He wants all of her. And he's thinking, he's been sort of thinking about her all day. He's been caught up and he's hoping that it's not too late. Unfortunately for him, she's put that to bed, hasn't she? She's thinking to herself, I already bathed, already washed, already put on my pajamas, already fell asleep. I already have that like bed breath and that bed hair. She's like, sorry, pal, should have called. Should have given me a heads up. No way. I mean, from her perspective, she's like, Babe, are you not reading the situation? Like, take a good look. Like, better luck next time. I'm going to sleep. And if you're married, you almost don't have to imagine this scene. We all get it. He makes his advances and she rejects his advances. But, but, but then in just an instant, everything shifts. Verse four, like in an instant. And all of a sudden she, she's, she's awake. But more than awake, she's convinced that she will respond to his advances. And so she gets out of bed and realizes that her husband left a gift, right? She, she puts her hand on the, the knob, the latch, and all of a sudden her hand is dripping with myrrh. Think, think of it as cologne. So he puts some cologne on the, the latch of the door. In the time that it took for her to get out of bed and to put on something presentable and walk to the door and open the door... All that's left is the scent of what could have been because we learn the sort of shocker is he's gone. 
verse 6. She rejected him, and then something inside of her tells her to pursue him. So in the time it took to do that, she's gone. Love, we could just put it this way, and this is sort of point one. Love, whether in marriage, in friendship, love is inconvenient. It always has an inconvenience to it because love is outward focused. It's others focused. Now, I, I don't think it does us any good to, to put blame on either the husband or the wife. Like, is it this, you know, tunnel visioned husband, this one, you know, one track mind husband? It's like, come on, pal, you know, cool it. Like, is it his fault or is it the wife's fault? It, I don't think it is any good to cast blame on one or the other. But what we can more than speculate on is that this is a perfect scene of what happens when selfishness creeps in to marriage or, frankly, any relationship. I mean, he, he, he thinks, I'm guessing, I'm speculating, but he thinks, I've had a hard day, long day. I deserve this. And she's thinking, he didn't show up. He didn't call. He didn't give me a heads up. He didn't doesn't deserve this. Both, and you even see it in some of the pronouns, I, 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 both are thinking about themselves, focus on the self. And in so doing, as they focus on the self, they are, for the first time ever, losing connection, losing intimacy. And conflict is now brooding in their relationship because of the self-centeredness and the selfishness that has arisen in their relationship. Selfishness, we could summarize it this way, or we could define it this way, is a sort of toxic blend of beliefs and behaviors that eventually erodes any relationship, whether marriage or friendship. It's the sort of belief that, that would never say, I'm the most important thing, I'm the most important person, my, my feelings are the most important, but functionally that's how it works. So you, you go home and, and you want the house to be better kept and you're like, I don't deserve this. Or whatever the scenario is. Selfishness is a toxic blend of beliefs and behaviors that eventually erodes intimacy. And every relationship lived out east of Eden, lived out in this broken world, has levels of conflict, because all of us are selfish. But that doesn't help us because all relationships based on love are an inconvenience because all relationships are one person's desire to put the other person before them. Relationships are, by their nature, an inconvenience. They're an attack on our self-centeredness. They're a calling to put Someone else's needs, someone else's concerns over my needs, over my concerns. We know, right, in principle, as the Bible says, that it's better to give than to receive. We, we know that. We teach it to our kids, and we go to Hobby Lobby, and we see it written all over signs and, like, cute, with cute flowers in it. Like, we know it, and yet it's difficult 
to live out that principle, to live out that truth. Because our needs become so loud in our hearts and our minds. Because all of us have levels, level, levels of degrees of what we could just call spiritual narcissism. We, we just have a preoccupation. This is what sin does. We have a preoccupation to just focus on ourselves, our needs, our wants, our feelings, and just swirl in on ourselves. And marriage and parenting and friendship really is the perfect context to have that self-centeredness rise to the surface. Love is inconvenient because it's always outward focus. And I know that Hollywood and Hulu try to say that, no, love is just this amazing feeling. It's all about you and, and your feelings, but it's not. Love is outward focus. And how do I know that? Because that is what the Christian gospel is all about. The Christian gospel is all about God loving us in one sense through inconvenient terms. So inconvenient that God had to send his only son to die for us. And it wasn't as if, you know, humanity's got God sitting in heaven going like, well, if they just get this together, then I'll love them. If they just obey a little bit better, then I'll die for them. If they just do this, if they just behave better, if they just obey these rules, if they just get it together, that's when I'll show up in their lives and then deepen my intimacy with it. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is the exact opposite of that. The Christian gospel says you don't deserve it, but Christ dies anyway. The Christian gospel says, oh yeah, you, you, you don't deserve his love, and yet Christ adopts you as a son and daughter in his family, in his kingdom. Christianity is contingent. It's founded. It's birthed out of this whole idea of grace. God's love for us cost him his own son. And in that sense, it is an inconvenient type of love. One of the greatest battles in all of our lives, in all of our relationships, in all of our marriages, in all of our parenting, in all of our friendships, in this church, the greatest battle for all of us is the battle against I. The battle against to put my needs, my concerns over everyone else's. And let me just apply this. It's Grad Sunday, so I think it's appropriate to sort of apply this. Um, There is a tendency to think that in your, you know, late teens and early 20s that going to college or whatever you're doing in that season, that it really is just all about you and figuring out who you are and figuring out your place in the, in the world. In a sense, that is true. It's a great place because college is, this is how I frame it, college is the, the, the least amount of responsibilities meets the most amount of opportunity, right? Just think about it. That's, it's true. And so you can stay up late. You can do this. You can join this club. You could go here. You could go there. You could almost do an infinite amount of choices that are coming and there's not that many consequences. And yet there's this subtle, subtle, but slow preoccupation that can happen in which you begin to become spiritually and maybe emotionally narcissistic. And it's just all about me and this season and 
Graduates, I'm just trying to encourage you that whatever, wherever you go, whatever season you find yourself in, my guess is we could have testimony. When we look back in those years, the things that we're most fond about, the things that are the biggest memory are not the things in which we, you know, the adventure that was all about us or the thing we did that was, you know, just the peak of our narcissism. My guess is, as it is my story, that when I think of the fondness of that season of my life, the greatest joys was when I was focused on others. You know, when I decided to tutor in Rainier Valley or, you know, when, when I decided to ask questions about my professor and get to know them and, and just go over to their house. And I mean, those are the things that I don't regret in the least. Relationships are an inconvenience because they're about thinking about the other person and putting their concerns over ours. So graduates, as you... Where if you stay here or you go, just consider that. Consider it. Intimacy involves inconvenience. That's point one. But love also makes us do some strange things. Look down at verse six. She's realized that he's gone, so she goes out looking for him. And she goes roaming the streets, which in this time, like any time, was dangerous particularly for a woman. And we know that it's nighttime because of the watchers of the the sort of security guards are out. So it's nighttime. Years ago, um, I got invited. uh, There's a handful of pastors that got invited to go down uh, into downtown Portland in this particular street to be a part of a drive along at like starting at about 10 all the way to four in the morning in, with this ministry that deals with and uh, has various safe houses in Portland for prostitutes. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not a night person. I'm very much a morning person. And so I was like drinking a lot of coffee to stay up. And we went out and it was the most eye-opening. And uh, I saw things that I wish I would never have seen. But I remember going out and the people who were, you know, leading this ministry were like, you know, you'd be driving, you're like, at one in the morning, why is there a used car dealership like lights? Why are they on? You'd be like, oh, shouldn't ask that question. And then you'd just be out and you'd just be seeing women who just, you know, look normal and just walking around. And yet, but because of the time and the location and a little bit, you know, having a big purse, you were like, oh, I get who they are. This woman is running around town at like two in the morning. And the obvious conclusion, to the community at least, is that she must be a prostitute. And I think that's what's going on in verse 7. Look look, look there at verse 7. It's it's shocking. She meets these watchers of the night, these security guards of the city. These same people showed up in chapter 3, but now they don't help her, but they beat her and bruise her. Appalling. Tragic. Physical violence, particularly in this context, is vile, it's evil, it's sinful, it's wrong, and we need to have a strict stance on this. And if you're in that sort of relationship, please tell someone, seek help, it is never okay. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is, in that sense, physical violence or sexual violence. It's a mis- 
uh, it's a, it's a injustice, but I think it's a criminal injustice. They think she's a prostitute, and in that time, it was a criminal offense. And so they treat her like that. And so it's, it's an injustice, but it's not a sexual injustice, or it's not a physical injustice in that sense. It's a criminal injustice. And so here, not, not only has this woman sort of lost her guy and she can't find him, but now she has lost her dignity. She's been treated like a woman of the night. That's how desperate she is. And then in verse 8, her friends arrive on the scene. I don't know what's going on. Maybe she finds a payphone and she just calls her friends and she's like desperate. And she's like, where are they? She is sick in love. She pushed him away and she got what she wanted. I think that's one of the most tragic metaphors for our sin. Actually, the greatest curse that God could ever give us is to give us what we want. She wanted to push him away. And in this sense, she got exactly what she wanted. Well, in the sort of midst of this kind of search party, the community comes out to her aid and they ask her a question. They're going to actually ask two questions. We see it again in chapter 6. But in verse 9, they basically ask her, what's so special about this guy? I mean, how is it that he's so great? And you can just sense when you read it, verse 9, that it's dripping with sarcasm. They're like, why should we get involved? He's just another guy. He's probably just out sulking somewhere. Why should we get involved? And that's when she responds. She responds with this lengthy, from verses 10 to 16, this lengthy description of her man and answers the question that they're asking. They're like, what's so great about him? And they're, she's like, I'll tell you what's so great about him. And she starts with his head and then works her way down. Verse 10, her man is strong and stands out among other men. Verse 11, I'm going to go through this quickly. He's crowned like a king. Verse 12, his eyes are full of peace. She gets lost in his eyes. Verse 13, his face is, is full. He, he's got a strong jaw like Denzel Washington, all right? Verse 14, his arms are strong. His body is as muscular as ivory. Verse 15, his legs are thick like columns. Verse 16, and now she goes back to sort of his head and talks about his, his mouth is sweet. He's all that she desires. Now, we saw last week that, that when she is describing him, and now that he's describing her, the, the, the emphasis of the poetry is not on what he or she looks like. The, the emphasis of the poetry is what they mean to one another. And you can see it pretty clearly. Verse 11, he's crowned with gold. And then verse 15, his feet or his base, those are his feet, have gold as well. Right? The, the top and tail, from head to toe, he is as precious to her as gold. That's why she wants to find him. That's why she would risk so much to find him. I think it's also interesting that, that when you compare her description of him with his description of her, there's a lot of similarities. They like kind of start at 
the face and work down, but, but there's actually some dissimilarities as well. So she focuses almost entirely, if you think about it, almost entirely from his shoulders up. I mean, in verses 14 to 15, she describes his arms and legs, but, but then even just after doing that, she goes back to his face and talks about his mouth, which I don't think is talking about his lips. I think he's, she's talking about his words, right? What makes this man so precious to her is that he praises her and he speaks kind words to her and he showers her with affection and words of praise. And then he, and then she ends with this great word, probably the most underrated word in all of marriage. I think one of the most underrated aspect of a healthy, thriving marriage. He, or sorry, she calls him her friend. Do you see it? That's one of the last things she uses to describe their relationship. He is her friend. And I checked, never does he say to her, you're my friend, which is true. But I just think it's really interesting that the emphasis is just different. So he focuses almost entirely on, on kind of physical characteristics of their relationship, and she focuses almost entirely on emotional, relational aspects of their relationship. Both are important. So she's pursuing him, thinking of him. And I think you can almost think of this whole section as a form of a confession, almost like a repentance. A repentance for the ways in which her behavior eroded their intimacy because she let the inconvenience of love get in between their love relationship. So let me just kind of summarize this whole scene, right? She falls asleep. He comes home late. She doesn't let him in. He takes off. Not a great move, by the way, but she goes looking for him, gets mistaken for a woman of the night, is then disciplined, and then asks for help from her friends. And eventually the community comes out to her aid. They ask her a question, why should we get involved? She then describes how amazing her man is, more precious to her than gold. And then eventually, verse 1, the community gets it, and they're like, okay, We get why he's so important. And they're like, how can we help? And then verse two, and this is, again, again, this is a dream. So the sequence is just abrupt. Scenes shift very quickly. Verse two, surprise. Whoop, there he is, right? She finds him. He just all of a sudden shows up. And they know where he is. He's not in a pub Sulking, he, he's not with his friends crashing on their couch. He's not wandering the streets. He's not even throwing her under the bus. He's doing none of that. All of a sudden, he's right there. She sort of woke up from this nightmare, if that's what we can call it, and all of a sudden, he's back with her. We start in a bedroom scene. We end in a bedroom scene. He's in his garden, which is, we've said this over and over again, is a metaphor for, for her, and it's a metaphor for the relationship. We start in a bedroom, we end in a bedroom, and it's sort of poetic whiplash, but it's beautiful 
Because what we go from is from lost to found, from losing hope to gaining hope, from loss of intimacy to intimacy rekindled. And all of this happened as she herself began to shift her thinking and began to pursue him. This whole idea of love being an inconvenience, it's as if she gets it and begins to live it out. We read verse 2 and 3. My beloved has, has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You see, what makes this love so powerful is that tension of lost and found. That This same language is the same language of the Garden of Eden once again. So paradise was lost and now paradise has been found. What almost makes this paradise so much more glorious, so much more beautiful, is that it was momentarily, temporarily lost. As if absence makes the heart grow fonder. So when it comes to love, I was thinking about it this week. This woman had three options. She had three options when this scene happened. But you could think of it within the context of friendship as well. You have three options when conflict comes into a relationship. One, we can offer to serve the other person, to think about them, and to do so with joy, and to put their needs over ours. Option one. Option two, you can serve them, but do it out of duty and a little bit of bitterness and resentment, right? Or three, you can just refuse and insist on your own way. Three paths. Maybe there's a fourth. I couldn't think of it this week. Those seem to be the three paths that we can take in the midst of relational conflict. The third path might have momentary joy. I get to do it my way. There's even songs written all about it. I did it my way. But we know that that might feel temporarily good. It might bring temporary joy. But long term, it just pushes everyone away. Because no one wants to hang out with that dude. No one wants to hang out with that girl. Option two might also sound good. Like, okay, I just got to do this. This I'm, I'm duty bound to do this. Okay, I'll just do this. But, but... Have you ever had someone serve you or bring you flowers and just be like, well, because I had to do this? I mean, it just, you're just like, I would rather not have flowers. Not only that, but if you just do this, if you just try to love someone and serve someone out of duty, you're not going to be able to do it. It's not sustainable. It's exhausting. At best, it's just moralism. But then there's the third. There's the third, which we see in this text. The third path brings joy and beauty. Her pursuit of him is why we get to verse 2 and 3 of chapter 6. From paradise lost to paradise gained. She lost, she found. Was it a dream? For sure it was a nightmare. We don't even know. But what we do know is that whatever chasm, whatever gulf was between them has now been bridged. He's in his garden. They're back in Eden. And it's a beautiful ending. Now, I said earlier that I love this chapter in many ways because I think it is such a 
beautiful portrait of and description of what it is to be in relationship in a broken world. And in many ways, this story, when you step back, it really does, in another way, mirror God's love for us. It mirrors the Christian story. It mirrors a biblical worldview. See, we reject God constantly, and yet God continues to pursue us. And he woos us. And sometimes we wake up and realize, oh, I don't want to be spiritually narcissistic any longer. And that's when intimacy with God feels like paradise. Fifteen years ago, or sorry, it was, it was about 15 years after my roommate and I had, you know, toenail gate. Uh, after my freshman year, let's just say it got worse and worse and worse. And we ended up and we didn't even really talk to each other at the end of our freshman year. Um, this is a cautionary tale, um, graduates. And he left, he transferred, he was out. He went back to Oregon and I was like, good riddance, enjoy. And then about, I don't know, 10 years after the fact, I just couldn't get this kid out of my mind. And so, and it took me a while. I tracked this dude down and we went out and we had dinner and uh, the first thing out of my mouth, and it was awkward, but the first thing out of my mouth after pursuing him and figuring out is, I just said, I'm really sorry. I was such a idiot 18 year old. Will you forgive me? And then it reversed, and he said the same thing. We, we spent our time kind of like talking about all the ways in which we sinned against each other and kind of laughed. And then we spent the night laughing and reconnecting and talking about our, our families and our kids. And it was as if, you know, that, that 15-year gulf never existed. I'm so grateful for that. And in many ways, the, the beauty of now how I think of this guy, this friend, is all the more heightened because for about 10 or 15 years, I lost him as a friend. But when I got out of myself and when he got out of himself and realized that love is always an inconvenience, which sometimes takes just a phone call, sometimes it just takes tracking someone down and owning our spiritual narcissism, that's when life feels a little bit like paradise. Love is an inconvenience, but that's what makes it so precious. Let's pray. God, we, um, we are so grateful that you didn't just leave us in our sin, but came down, sent your son in the incarnation to, to live as we lived and to die as we should have in order to be raised in newness of life through faith in your Son. Lord, we, we know that living in a broken world, we, we all have tension in our relationships. And I pray even right now that you would bring to our mind that the men and women that we ought to pursue in love and humility and seek to restore relationships for your glory and our good.
We thank you for the blessed of your wor- the blessing of your word and pray, Lord, that you would deepen our relationships, our friendships, our membership, our church, our community, our marriages, and our parenting. And I pray, Lord, that we root all of them in the hope of the gospel. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.